Why would the state seek to regulate biblical counseling on this edition of Truth and Love? I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. And today on the podcast, I'm excited that we can introduce to you Ed Wildy. Ed has been a lawyer in the state of California since 1989. He has taught at Masters University since 2002. He's taught both counseling courses and also courses in law there. He is married to Kelly, has five children. Praise the Lord. One of them is with the Lord even now. I've really enjoyed getting to know Ed uh, these last several months. We are working on a book together on counseling and legal issues. And Ed, it's been really fun to get to know you and for us to talk. You have taught me a tremendous amount, even things that I was passionate about, but areas where I could refine language. And so I'm grateful now to introduce you to our our listening audience. And so thank you, brother, for being here. Well, it's absolutely my my pleasure to be here. Very good. Now, we're going to discuss today some, uh, obviously, some legal issues. This is important. And uh, what I love about you, Ed, is is God has gifted you in such a way to to think well about law, to think about um, our legal system, how it works. You've operated in that space for quite some time, but you also have a passion for God's church. You love the ministry of biblical counseling. Uh, You've taught this at Master's University for several years. And uh, so you intersect into a very unique space uh, that, that is very helpful, a unique skill for so many in our movement. And so as we talk today, pastors have all sorts of questions. You and I have, I have talked a number of times before. A couple of great hindrances that I see consistently among pastors. The first is always something to do with psychotropic medication and diagnostic criteria of the DSM. People are hindered from thinking about biblical counseling because they say, well, what about that stuff? The second major issue that I see all the time from pastors is uh, they, they preach the word solidly. They're conservative. They believe the word has power when it's preached from the pulpit. But what inevitably happens when we talk about counseling to, to utilize the sufficiency of the word and the authority of the word in, in the counseling room, pastors start to get nervous. And the thing that they're nervous about that hinders them from, from jumping into the world of biblical counseling is the area of, of law, of being afraid in many ways of lawsuits and that sort of thing. And we live in a country that historically has uh, welcomed freedom, welcomed uh, the practice of religion, welcomed worship of God. Uh, but But even now, pastors are a little fearful about that. Some may even engage in in counseling ministry or do things in their church and and they still still operate under fear understanding we have freedom of religion we have some understanding about the constitution but help us to understand exactly how the constitution works um for us in the church well as everyone knows in the united states we do have expressly stated in the federal constitution and it's repeated in the various state constitutions, the right to have a free exercise of religion. The constitution is set up in such a way that the government isn't to establish a religion. Uh, The idea there at first was something along the lines of the Church of England, where there would be a tax-supported religious institution to which everybody would be a de facto member. So that's not something that takes place in the United States. But in order to make sure that that was possible, in order to allow 
the various groups of people who were coming from Europe primarily at that time to live with each other in some harmony, the federal constitution stated that there would be no impediment put to the free exercise of religion, at least nothing by the federal government. Over the course of time, that guarantee of freedom of religion in the federal constitution has been extended directly to the states. And as I stated, each of the states have a statement in their constitution that there'll be freedom of religion. The problem with that is that what constitutes freedom of religion in practice can be a little bit more difficult. So if we are to think about religion in terms of a particular doctrinal statement, the federal government is neutral on those sorts of things. The state governments are neutral on that sorts of things. I'm unaware of any local government anywhere trying to institute, at least anytime recently, um, you know, adherence to the Nicene Creed or not. Mm-hmm. Not even in a state that is so heavily towards one religion as the state of Utah, is there anything like a state-imposed religion? So when we're talking about the content of religious doctrine, uh, there's not any problem when it comes to that. Um, when we speak about what happens in terms of our liturgical practice, when you go to when we go to church on Sunday morning and we close the door, the state government in the United States is unconcerned about whether we wear vestments or we do not, whether we faced east, whether we. Um, you know, take the host on our knees or whether we have a communion plate that is passed person to person. So those sorts of things are typically not where the conflict comes up. The conflict will come up when we begin to think about the other entailments of religion. So for instance, as a Christian, and if we're going to be biblically faithful, we have fairly express rules about our understanding of the human body, about what is appropriate sexual practice and what is not. And we are coming to a position where our opinions about such things, our doctrine as to how we organize our life, tends to run contrary to the majority culture. An easy example I had is a friend of mine who attends church here with me at Grace Um, By the age of 30, he was married and he had a few children. The people with whom he worked thought that he was a strange person for having gotten married and had children at such a young age. So what we would consider to be normal sort of behavior, because it is an entailment of a religion, starts to look strange when we go outside of the church. So the conflict comes about when we start to look at what we do when we're outside of our house of worship as the regulations in the state of California on COVID refer to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what do we do in those places? And we have to be careful how we think about this as Christians, Mm -hmm. because if we automatically say I should get to do whatever I want in the public space, because my religion uh, permits that we have to understand that whatever the general rule is has to apply to everyone. Mm -hmm. So we've had circumstances where I've read of Muslim women Mm -hmm. who come from a very orthodox conservative Muslim background who believe that they should have their face covered at all times, except when they're with their husband. The same woman then tries to get an ID 
from the local government, and she refuses to take off her face covering for purposes of the photograph. Well, she devoutly believes that her religion entails this conduct, and it is an entailment of her understanding of the religion, but that runs contrary to what the rest of us believe is necessary for civil society. So if we say, well, I should be able to do whatever I want because it's my religion, that's not exactly what we believe. Or, you know, we certainly would be apprehensive if we had a neighbor who was involved in Moloch worship. Mm-hmm. So when we say that we have freedom of religion, we need to realize that necessarily is built into that some kind of conflict with our neighbors. That didn't show up for a long time in the United States mm-hmm. because originally everybody belonged to generally Judeo-Christian background. Most people were Christians. There's a few Jews, fewer Muslims. and but their religious behavior outside of the time of worship was relatively the same. It's become much more complicated now. One, as we've had more people from other parts of the world moving to the United States. And so we have people who are engaged in Hindu or Buddhist practices, far more people who are engaged in Muslim practices. And so the question about what is protected as religion, what is not, has become more difficult. Now, I, that's a critical point because uh, we're certainly not saying there's there's not freedom of religion. The the Constitution certainly gives us that um, right. That's certainly true. However, I, I think you're shaping that well to help us to understand that that, that can't just be um, a free for all in public spaces. And and I think you've helped to give the nuances that explain the wisdom that's behind that. Our our knee jerk reaction often is to say. Well, we want to just simply do away with the government or governmental restrictions or they're encroaching upon my religion. But we also have to recognize the scriptures demand from us uh, that we honor ruling authorities. We honor the government. And we, we recognize, do we not, that the state has legitimate authority. So can you describe what that legitimate authority really is? Well, the legitimate authority of the government is um, as... Abraham Kuyper would put it, it's to be able to keep human beings alive so that the church has a place to flourish. We do want there to be public order. We do want the government to provide for public safety. We want the government to make it possible so that when I leave this building, I can walk to a car that I have relative surety is still going to be there. And when I go home, my house isn't going to be attacked. When we've seen some of the, um, some of the riots and things that have been going on in the United States, we have a legitimate concern about safety and public safety. And we expect the government to be able to take care of those sorts of things to protect us from other people. So there is a legitimate authority there and it does entail certain elements of the way we interact with other people that may come into conflict with religion and that's incidentally, you'll see even in the places where we are having difficulty, for instance, things concerning human sexuality, that the government is trying to frame its concern about Christianity's teaching on those issues in terms of public safety. So they say um, Christian teaching about homosexuality causes people to feel bad about themselves. If they feel bad about themselves, they'll hurt themselves. We don't want you saying that because we don't want people hurting themselves. Mm-hmm. So. Even when they are coming at us on a point which is um, going to be difficult for us to deal with, they are coming at us 
at least in terms of the rhetoric as a matter of public health and safety to care for all of us. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, again, that's a critical distinction. We want to acknowledge very clearly that God has given the state legitimate authority. Um, and it's actually for the flourishing of the church. It's, it's helpful. It's healthy. It's a good thing. Now for us, we need to bring this to bear and pastors have thousands of questions as it relates more broadly, but for our purposes, we're dealing with the issue of, of counseling, biblical counseling, and, and we have to be cautious as we, we understand constitutional rights in our, in our country that, that, that uh, we want to honor the government. We recognize our biblical responsibility based on what God has commanded that we do and nothing trumps uh, the sovereign. Right. Uh, But we bring that into the counseling room and we have to be vigilant and wise in how we go about uh, doing the practice of biblical counseling because those two worlds begin to collide. Um, Talk for just a second about how we distinguish the idea of counseling from therapy and why that's important when we talk about legal issues uh, for the church's sake. Well, when we think about what therapy is, uh, therapy is, when we talk about, you know, psychotherapy, we're talking about a, a professional relationship between relative strangers. Um, I hang, as an attorney, I hang out my shingle. I say that I'm a lawyer. In order for me to do that, I have to receive a license from the state, the state's delegated to the state bar association. And so I have to go to college. I have to go to law school. I have to take the bar exam. I have to have continuing legal education. And the purpose of that is so that members of the public know what it is that they're getting when they come to see me. There are certain minimal educational and ethical standards, which I need to adhere to so that when strangers come to me, we know what is going to be part and parcel of this relationship and what they can expect. We have food inspectors for the same sort of thing. Therapy falls into that sort of category where the government is regulating professional relationships between strangers for the good and protection of the public. However, as I said before, the government doesn't regulate the content of a religious doctrine. Mm Um, And provided that our religious conduct doesn't cause safety concerns for the people outside of our religion, the government is willing to permit us to engage in those behaviors and hold our opinions. The government doesn't care whether we adhere to the Trinity or not. Both of those are acceptable positions as far as the government is concerned. So what we need to do as counselors is we need to make it very, very clear that what we are doing when someone comes into the counseling room is not providing them therapy. We're not there to help these people identify what will make them happy and then help them to become happy. Now, they're going to present with a particular problem. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I have a bad marriage. But what we're teaching them is not to not be depressed, not to not be anxious or have a better marriage. We're teaching them how to become better Christians. We're teaching them what is required to be an adherent of the religion of Jesus Christ. He said, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Adams wrote the book, teaching them to observe. Mm -hmm. But his point is, is that what we do as counselors is we're engaged in discipleship practice. We're teaching people to become Christians. Now, part of that is going to have effects up on 
whether we feel anxious, whether we feel joyful, how we conduct our marriage. But the reason that we're teaching them how to behave in a marriage is not primarily for the purposes of them having a better marriage. It's a side effect of our aim. We're teaching them how to behave in a marriage because that's what is required of us by Jesus, not because I'll be happier if I do that. So Ed, at the at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about constitutional freedoms. And thankfully, we live in a country where we can have that conversation. That's not our ultimate aim necessarily. We are we are biblical Christians where we try to operate under what what God has has given to us. But based on the things that you you just recently said about the counseling room and provisions that are made, I don't want pastors to continually walk under the assumption that they think they're doing everything okay or above board because um, they have a a constitutional right of freedom of religion, but we're very sloppy in the counseling room in the way that we approach it. So uh, talk for a second about how we can be very wise and cautious about that constitutional freedom, uh, but not getting sloppy in the counseling room. Well, one thing is, and I've seen this a lot when I've been watching Christians write on Facebook and Twitter and all sorts of social media or just talk and conversation, how they understand the way that constitutional rights function in practice. There's this belief that if I just say it's protected by the constitution, it somehow magically is. The jurisprudence around constitutional rights is enormously complex. Mm -hmm. Even narrow issues of constitutional law are hotly debated among people who are experts in them, the argumentation that goes into them is very complex. And when somebody would come up and ask me, well, is this protected by the constitution or is it not? Uh, Oftentimes the only thing I can say is, I don't know. I can tell you what kind of arguments I would make because the constitution isn't a self-effectuating document. It, it it doesn't happen just because I say that something is protected by the Constitution. A couple of cases that illustrate this pretty easily would be one in the 19th century involving uh, polygamy in the Mormon church. At that time, the Mormon church required polygamy or it permitted polygamy as part of its doctrine. The United States Supreme Court said, you can be a Mormon And you can believe this, but you can't engage in the practice of polygamy. There was a case in the early 1990s, as I recall, that involved the Native American religious adherents who were taking peyote, which is illegal under federal law. So is it permissible to take this drug, which is illegal for everybody in the United States, if I say I'm doing it for purposes of my religion? Those were things that had to go up to the Supreme Court to find an answer to. On the other hand, you had the flag cases involving the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the first time it came up, the court found that not saluting the flag was properly reprimanded and you didn't have a religious freedom to not salute the flag. And then shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court reversed its decision on the exact same point. So when we talk about something being protected by the Constitution or not, we need to realize that What is protected by the Constitution or not is going to be something that will be answered by a judge. No person making the assertion, no pastor in a pulpit, no lawyer making the argument can tell you that something is absolutely protected or it is not. Those are questions that are answered by judges in the context of litigation. So that would be the first caution I would give pastors. The next thing I would be careful about 
is the pastor being enormously clear about what he is doing. Mm-hmm. We get sloppy in the counseling room when we begin to talk about our counseling in terms of trying to help people feel better. Mm-hmm. We have a, a very robust doctrine in Christianity that suffering is oftentimes a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that the goal of God in this world is not to make human beings happy, mm-hmm. at least not in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, to paraphrase a line from Augustine in his confessions, he says, you know, you're looking for a happy life in the land of death. Mm-hmm. You're looking for a happy life where there is no life. That expectation is the thing that's being held out in therapy, but not the thing that is being held out in discipleship. Mm-hmm. We need to make it abundantly clear that what we are trying to do is to teach people how to behave as a Christian when I leave church on Sunday morning. And if we're unclear about that point, we're going to run into a number of difficulties. Now, uh, you know, I think one of the things that comes up right there is, yeah, but we're going to run into difficulties anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're going to run into difficulties, then it better be because... It for Jesus's sake, mm-hmm. you know, you were bringing up the relationship between the Christian and the church mm-hmm. and excuse me, the Christian, and the church, the, the, the Christian and the government. Mm-hmm. How, how does the church relate to the government? And I'm thinking of first Peter chapter two, mm-hmm. and we need to maintain a good witness. But a little bit after that in first Peter chapter four, Peter says, if any of us suffers, he better not suffer as a criminal. Let him suffer because he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. And if Teaching people to behave as a Christian comes to the point that it does bring us in conflict with the state. We need to make very plain it's because we're a Christian and because the scripture requires this of us, and we're going to have to live with the consequences of that. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, I know in this discussion, so many of you who are listening, you're intrigued and you're curious about some of the topics that we talked about. And I can just tell you, we only touched a minuscule portion of the surface uh, as it relates to this discussion and how important this discussion is for us moving forward to, to do our due diligence as it relates to counseling to do it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So we want to honor the government. That's certainly true. But we also have a mandate from the Lord that we are responsible for to minister his scripture well. And so I want to remind you that we have a pre-conference going on. It will happen October the 5th. And the deadline to register is October the 4th, absolute deadline. And so I want to encourage you, uh, we will have five plenary sessions on October the 5th on this particular subject, legal issues and biblical counseling. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that. We will go into depth relative to a lot of different aspects as it relates to the church and legal issues. Uh, We want to walk in freedom as our responsibility requires it in the church, but we also want to do that with a posture of honoring as the scripture demands that we do toward the ruling authorities. So join us for that pre-conference. You can find out about it and many other resources on our website, biblicalcounseling.com.